I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Over the past year, COVID-19 has dominated the news and has created unprecedented challenges for governments across the region. But beyond the pandemic, dramatic events are reshaping the institutes of governance in several countries, most notably Myanmar and Afghanistan, bringing serious violations of human rights and undermining any notion of democratic governance. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. Where in this episode, we're exploring what recent shifts and longer-term trends mean for human rights in Asia. Policy Forum Pod is produced by PolicyForum.net here at the Crawford School of Public Policy, which is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Don't forget to check out our range of degree programs and short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. You can find out the amazing range of things that we have on offer there. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School, and I am delighted to be with my pod buddy, Anna Greta Hunter. Hi, Anna Greta. Hi, Sharon. It's great to be with you virtually again um, in our virtual studio. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. And listeners, thank you so much for your indulgence and understanding about the challenges of remote recording. Uh, we are hoping not to be interrupted by the different animals in our back gardens and in our environment. But if if we do, we do apologise. Uh, and we know that the audio quality is not quite up to the scratch that it is normally. So hopefully we'll be back in the studio soon. We really appreciate people's patience during this time when Anna Greta's chickens and my dogs interrupt from time <laughs> to time. That's right. <laughs> this past year has seen some serious challenges to the human rights of people in several countries across Asia. Human Rights Watch reported a deterioration in the situation in the Philippines in 2020, where extrajudicial killings increased by over 50% during April to July 2020 during COVID-19 lockdown. In Indonesia, there has been a rise in conservative religious rhetoric with worrying implications for the human rights of women in particular and also for LGBT communities. In Myanmar, there has been a long series of violations of human rights of minority groups, particularly the Rohingya, where state-sponsored violence led to large-scale exodus and a refugee crisis. And the human rights situation across the country worsened with a military takeover on February the 1st, 2021, following the general election. 
In Afghanistan, the withdrawal of US and other foreign troops has seen the Taliban take government with severe implications for the human rights of all, but particularly the human rights of women. These situations raise some very serious questions about human rights, about gender relations and about the human rights of women. They also raise questions about the role of countries in the region and of regional institutions such as ASEAN in protecting human rights. And today we have two fabulous guests, two outstanding scholars who are two of my favourite researchers on these issues to talk through these range of, range of issues with us. Anna Greta, would you like to do the introductions? Absolutely, Sharon. We've got two fabulous guests with us today, as you mentioned. Dr. Matthew Davies is Director of Education and Deputy Director of the Department of International Relations in the Coral Bell School of Asia Pacific Affairs here at the Australian National University. Matthew is a leading scholar of human rights, governance and institutional arrangements in Southeast Asia, with a particular focus on the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN. Matthew's research investigates how ASEAN is a driver of and arena for efforts to diffuse human rights standards. His work has focused on stories of rights socialisation efforts that have emerged within ASEAN and across the region, the success and the failure of, failure of these efforts, and how we can use these stories to better understand what ASEAN is. He's published widely on these issues and has developed and taught award-winning courses on them. Welcome, Matthew. Hello there. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you with us. And this, alongside Matthew is Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer, and she's the director of Griffith University Policy Innovation Hub. She's been in that role since July 2020. She was previously Deputy Head of School for Research at the Griffith Law School, and prior to joining Griffith University, was Director of Studies at the Australian National University Asia-Pacific College of Diplomacy. Susan is the author of Gender and Transitional Justice, The Women of Timor-Leste, and with Kate Ogg, the Research Handbook for Feminist Engagement with International Law. She was chosen as the winner of the Andre Rapport Prize for Scholarship on the Human Rights of Women for, in 2006. She's the 2021 winner of a Fulbright Scholarship in Australian-United uh, States Alliance Studies, which has been funded by DFAT and will be hosted by Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. And Susan has provided advice to governments and a range of organisations around the world. It's great to have you with us today too, Sue. Thank you very much for joining us. It's lovely to be here. So, Matt, I wondered if we could start with you. Um, there was a time when Lee Kuan Yew and Muhammad Mahathir were particularly influential in ASEAN. Both Indonesia and the Philippines were under authoritarian rule. And that was a time, I must say, when I was doing my PhD on children's human rights in Indonesia, and it didn't look possible that under the Suharto regime, human rights would ever be taken seriously. And it certainly didn't seem likely that ASEAN would adopt a human rights declaration. It, it, it just seemed unimaginable. But such a declaration was adopted in 2012 and has now been in place for almost a decade. Matt, can you talk us through the nature of that declaration and the mechanisms that are now in place around it to promote human rights in the region. Yes, absolutely. One of the, and I think you hint at this in your question, one of the really remarkable things when you look at Southeast Asia as a region is the, the relative rapidity with which human rights have been institutionalised uh, across the regional body, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. If you look at the region in the mid to late uh, 1990s, you see a region that is openly hostile, at least to uh, explicit the language of human rights and institutionalizing human rights. 
obviously you have societies that have got very long traditions of thinking about the relationship between individuals and government, you know, these, these ideas of human dignity, but they resist the language of human rights. What happens in the late 1990s and into the 2000s is really the confluence of various forms of pressure on Southeast Asian countries. The Asian financial crisis of 1997 really problematizes and undermines this old authoritarian way of doing business. This leads to the democratization, especially of Indonesia, who has always been so important in ASEAN. And you have pressure from the United States and the Europeans during that period where really sort of liberal capitalism is almost the only model that is out there. Of course, now we live in a very different world. What's really important to understand when we think about human rights in Southeast Asia and how they are institutionalized is that they are institutionalized not as the resolution of debates about what human rights are and what human rights mean, but that actually that institutionalization coexists with continuing deep disagreement between the countries. Indonesia is far more on the sort of democratic side of things, but of course is characterized by all of the problems that you raised in your introduction. And of course, we go to countries like the Philippines, Myanmar, Cambodia, which have very different and very sort of negative approaches to human rights, I think we could say. The result then is something like the ASEAN Human Rights Declaration of 2012, which when you take a first look of it, at it is very impressive. It talks across 40 articles of civil and political rights, economic, cultural and social rights, the rights to peace, the right to development. You know, ASEAN's got a long history of engaging with women and children, albeit in a very particular way. And you can look like, oh, wow, this is a very important and powerful statement. But the more you look at the statement, the more problems you see with the statement. And of course, the problems are because these countries are disagreeing with each other and are jostling for position and promoting very different opinions at the same time, which come together in the document, but aren't resolved by that document. So you have, yes, commitments, as I've said, to free and fair elections and, you know, all sorts of freedoms of association and religion and thought. But you also have very strong statements about the power of national governments to, to interpret human rights and to, and to come to a position that's perhaps not in accord with global human rights standards. You have commitments that really sort of echo and invoke some of those conversations we saw with Lee Kuan Yew back in the 1990s about Asian values and relativism. And as I always tell my students, when you get to Article 40 of the ASEAN Human Rights Declaration, what you actually see is a self-denying clause, because Article 40 says, you know, none of the foregoing 39 articles can in any way be used to undermine the aims and principles of ASEAN. So you go to the ASEAN Charter and you find out what the aims and the principles are, and they are absolute freedom, non interference, non-intervention, domestic inviability. Okay, So human rights, when we view them, perhaps from Australia, we view them in a particular way and we view them as settled. But in the Southeast regional situation, they're far from settled and there's a diversity of opinions that are hidden by some of these documents and aren't addressed by some of these documents. And of course, that then talks to how various ASEAN institutions handle human rights. We've got the ASEAN Commission, the Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights. We've got the Commission on Women and Children and we've got a Commission on Migrant Workers. And yes, they do important work, and perhaps we can talk about that later, but they too are hamstrung by this very consensual, very non-interventionist, very domestic freedoms approach. 
And all of the ASEAN states, of even the ones that we would think are quite pro-human rights in terms of their domestic politics, all of these states have worked really hard to ensure that the relationship between their, t- their citizens and their government is not exploited or interfered with or in any way overviewed by the regional body. Susan, we might follow on from that fantastic outline of the declaration, asking you specifically about what that, what difference that de- the declaration has made, uh, particularly for women's right, human rights in the region. I think it has given it a language a discourse that uh, communities can share across borders. So what I've seen is some really, really strong women's rights organisations across ASEAN who are able to use the the charter and and the language of the the declaration in their work um, and it gives them a legitimacy and a ability to create interventions with domestic governments that they might not otherwise have but it is very difficult to get particular types of actions so what i've been very interested in is how often groups inside countries, women's rights organisations actually go to the ASEAN Parliamentarians for Human Rights, for example, uh, for action, because it's quite hard to, you know, so if their domestic advocacy doesn't work, they they go to this. um, The status of the parliamentarians, uh, Matt, is is quite interesting, isn't it? It's a sort of a semi-formal part of ASEAN, but it doesn't really have the same like it's not a governmental organisation, most of them are retired parliamentarians. It's a very interesting kind of quasi court of appeal for human rights really in in, in, in practice. Uh, so you saw that in Myanmar, you're seeing it at the moment in Myanmar and the Philippines and in Thailand and a range of other um, examples where women's rights organisations are using that mechanism. Definitely also being able to have claims in ASEAN that can then be uh, transposed to other UN bodies as well is very useful. So you will see uh, campaigns and information that are that are directed towards the ASEAN declaration that are also then translated into, say, shadow reports for CEDAW or for um, a Universal Periodic Review in the Human Rights Council or you know, Commission on the Status of Women. So I think I, I've, my view is the women's rights advocacy around ASEAN is is very sophisticated, but it's also, I must say, in incredible difficulty at the moment. So I, I don't think I've seen such a difficult time for women's rights in our region in my lifetime. Uh, and you see constant, there is, there's more fear, physical fear, I think, of um, people in the sector. So people now report to me constantly that they feel physically frightened to do the work that they do that they hadn't before. And also, I think the national human rights institutions generally feel under more pressure than they have before as well. So the national human rights institutions are an important piece of this ASEAN human rights puzzle as well. And I think they're all, or I'm trying to think of any that are thriving at present, but generally speaking, they're all really having a difficult time in terms of both resources, independence and and, and voice. So it's it's a really bleak time, I think. And I I, I put it down to combination of COVID and some rise of authoritarian kind of politics in the region might also be the influence of China. And I also think it's the kind of withdrawal of US diplomatic uh, influence as well over the last period. Matt, I, I wanted to, to get your thoughts on the situation in Myanmar and how 
ASEAN has has responded to that. There there was the crisis with the the serious violations against the Rohingya and then the exodus and the refugee crisis that surrounded that. And then, of course, in February this year, we saw the military seize power and the human rights situation further deteriorate. How effective has ASEAN been in responding to the situation in Myanmar? I think it's very rare to get an academic who gives a decisive answer, but I will be decisive. And I think ASEAN has been completely redundant in this in this situation, unfortunately. It's not that it hasn't talked about some of these issues. And some of those conversations have happened in public, but the vast majority of them will have happened in closed doors away from the press. That's how ASEAN works. You know, that's one of the, the benefits, in a narrow sense anyway, of the regional body. The... The issues with Myanmar really expose the fundamental weaknesses of ASEAN's human rights regime. And I don't sit here as somebody who is outrightly sceptical or sees no value in what ASEAN is doing. But I do think we need to be critical where criticism is justified. ASEAN's human rights system is an opt-in system. It's an opt-in system for countries that are interested in institutionalizing values at a regional level. And what we see in Myanmar is a whole range of situations where the government with the Rohingya, even under the NLD, and of course now up with the military coup, um, they're not interested in institutionalizing those rights. And so the ASEAN human rights governance system is incredibly weak. There's very little that can be done. Yes, the Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights talks about protecting and promoting human rights, but almost all of its work, I would go so far as to say literally all of its work, is about promoting. It's about looking forwards. It's about education, public awareness, training. It's not about the investigation, let alone the correction of wrongs that have already happened. Because ASEAN is it's justified, it is based upon this sort of non-interventionist principles, countries which do violate rights ultimately have the freedom to do so. And that is the stark reality of the situation. And we can say, well, hold on, ASEAN has commitments to democracy. You know, it's in the ASEAN Charter. It's in the intergovernment, it's in, sorry, in the um, Declaration of Human Rights. Yes, but ASEAN doesn't define what democracy is. ASEAN doesn't actually give any flesh, any detail to any of these terms. And so we can bandy these terms around, you know, and the, the military junta came out with a statement, I think it was a couple of months ago, that the, the coup had enhanced the human rights of people living in Myanmar because now they were free to live without the NLD corruption. Okay, that's what happens when you have language and you have terms that aren't detailed at the regional level. It creates the permissive space for interpretations that we may have very many problems with, but are legitimate, at least within the context of the institution and the context of the language that is used. So I think ASEAN was always going to do nothing. I think it has done nothing. I don't think that means the ASEAN system is useless, but I do think it means that we have to be really open and honest about what the limitations of that system are. And very sadly, the Myanmar situation has revealed those in stark contrast. Susan, I saw you nodding during Matt's uh, talk just then. You've previously worked with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. What's your take on the ASEAN response to the abuses which the Rohingya have been subject? Well, I completely agree with Matt about ASEAN, but I, I also would say it's not like anyone else has done particularly better either. Mm. It's, it's, it's a systems failure. Uh, at every level, really, I feel like the the killing of uh, the the Rohingya human rights defender uh, on the 29th of September, Mohub Ullah, it was a flat out assassination in the camp, 
uh, that shows a, I guess, a flagrant disregard and a feeling that, um, you know, there'll be impunity for, for things at the moment. And you could see why people, uh, why the Tatmadaw and others would have the confidence of feeling like, well, you know, there are no limits, there are no real consequences, uh, but the, the flagrant assassination of a human rights leader in, in full daylight, in cold blood, it was just extraordinary and, no, and no, no consequences as such. So that, to me, was a very scary signal that we're entering new territory where there won't even be spin, you know, there won't even be an attempted spin. Whilst I, I've been, I've been so disappointed with the ASEAN response. I've been equally disappointed by the responses from Western countries and the United Nations. I feel like the UNHCR and the other agencies have got their hands completely tied as well, despite their best efforts. And you know, even the International Criminal Court investigations are very important, but they're very long term. So, you know, uh, for my view. I just wrote a really bitter piece about how, um, you know, we might get justice for Rohingya after they've all been killed with COVID or other types of issues. You know, there's nothing, there's a complete failure of prevention of human rights. That's got to be one of the most preventable human rights issues the world has ever seen. Generations in the making, very predictable, just allowed to happen with very little consequence. So yeah, pretty depressing uh, analysis from the human rights community about Biamba, but also, you know, the amount that our American and European colleagues don't seem to be very focused on it either. Is that fair, uh, Matt? But I I don't see the same kind of, like even as a Timor scholar, I feel like there's less interest in Myanmar than there was in Timor. Uh, I'm not really sure. I think because people feel like they made the wrong call, they wrote a lot of positive things about Aisung Suu Kyi, they were very bitter about what they saw as their betrayal by the NLD and now, you know, they don't know what to say. You know, there's been a wedging, I think, of some of the international community on that issue. So it's really depressing Um, and I feel like the combination of the democratic uh, crisis and COVID is one that deserves our attention because it has a lot of consequences for the rights of people in Myanmar. So this is not about the transferal of power from political elites. This is really life or death stuff for the average citizen of Myanmar because of the particular timing of the crisis. So, yeah, that's, sorry about that. Nothing but depressing talk from me this morning. I think this is the situation when we when we look at human rights uh, across the region, but particularly in Myanmar and and in other places, there is not a lot that's positive to say, but there is a lot to be said for talking about the problems and at least shining a light on the violations that are taking place and not allowing the international community to just let this slide away. I think on that we we will just take a short break. We will come back in just a moment, listeners, so please don't go away to continue this fundamentally important conversation. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Matt Davies and Sue Harris-Rimmer talking about human rights across the Asian region. Before the break, we were talking uh, particularly about Myanmar and um, and ASEAN, but also other countries' responses there. I wanted now to just shift our focus to another human rights situation outside the ASEAN region, but particularly dire, and that is Afghanistan. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on what the international community now needs to do to try to protect the rights of women and girls in particular within a regime that has demonstrated the extent to which it is prepared to violate those rights. Where do we even start here? Yes, well, we should have started 20 years ago with better design of the intervention and better prevention tactics during the intervention and then a better plan for when the withdrawal was going to happen. This, Honestly, the whole Afghanistan situation is going to be used as a case study for what not to do for forever. It's extraordinary. And I suppose that the women's rights issue is particularly important because of the rhetoric that was constantly used about, um, you, you know, the, the women's rights under the Taliban being a reason. You know, it was, ne- it was never the reason for, uh, for the actual... Um, the mission there, it was always clearly to uh, protect the United States from further acts of terrorism after September 11. But by heavens, there was a lot of rhetoric around women's rights uh, used by George Bush and then and then leaders, including our own, ever since. And so there's this feeling of, from the average Perth member of the public, I would think it was like, hang on, wasn't that part of why we were there? Isn't that part of what, what was meant to be happening over there? Uh, and to be fair, there was resources and quite extraordinary resources put into education in Afghanistan, which is never wasted and incredibly important. So I would never for a moment say that that emphasis for that period, long period of time, that's going to affect generations of Afghan women and girls. And that's precious and a precious moment in time for, for their rights to be realised. Uh, but then to just that deal with the Taliban and the consequent uh, failure of the Afghan state, which was eminently predictable by every Afghan scholar I've ever read who was telling everyone the state will fall and will fall quickly, it's just unforgivable in, in terms of women's rights. And now all the, you know, there's just been a UN General Assembly session where everyone's beating their chests and calling about, you know, but but what about the women and children, you know, literally sort of Simpson stuff going on and thinking, well, what do we do now is is hopeless, you know. In my view, the Taliban persecution of, of women is 
it probably does have religious and ideological uh, roots, but it's very tactical as well. It's um, clearly a tactic that they've been using for some time in Kandahar and other locations. It's a way to frighten and control the community. They're not going to give up those tactics and there was no evidence that they ever would, no, no real evidence. So honestly, the best way to help women and, and children in Afghanistan now is to help them leave in a safe and orderly manner and to provide safe zones as much as possible inside various parts of Afghanistan. I don't know how realistic that's going to be in terms of the the military capability that's left inside the country. And again, just to support uh, all those, you know, I know a lot of Afghan women that I interviewed for my book that have not left, have chosen to stay, always expected the Taliban to come back and were ready and prepared the idea that, the you know, they never really believed the international community's rhetoric on women's rights and that always made me sad, but how right they were. You know, they were much more insightful than I was, clearly, about the, the actual commitment of uh, Western states to their their and their families' well-being. So um, I have every faith in the courage of Afghan women to make the best choices they can for their own agency and protection. So I guess the situation is very similar to Burmese women. You you can bear witness, you can act in solidarity, you can, where possible, you know, help people make make uh, exit strategies, especially for the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission. I'm really concerned about their safety. Any women who are judges, any women who are politicians. Uh, women who ran schools, there are, you know, the, the Taliban had a list when they were in Kandahar. They've, they've clearly got a list of these people. And we can also uh, just keep providing space and, and information about what Afghan women are saying in all their diversity all the time. So, it, again, incredibly depressing. So fancy. So I've, that's all I've done for the last six years is talk to women in Afghanistan and Burma and I'm just... It's like just so depressing, this idea that there was a transition. And again, I think we have to keep questioning political or legal changes do not equal necessarily actual transitions of societies and we keep making that mistake. So we we go too early, we have all this, you know, we come in with these toolkits that are completely inappropriate. What you have maybe is a pause the Tatmadaw never yielded power, the Taliban never yielded power. And so what you had was a pause rather than a transition. And, you know, we've got to just get smarter with our international relations and our policy thinking around these moments. And um, I feel in Burma in particular, we were dominated by thinking about the opening up of that market. And so we bedazzled by foreign investment opportunities in the West. And I think in Afghanistan, it was always seen as a military mission and completely missed all the societal and community underpinnings of that of that state and also failed to understand what the massive amounts of US money washing around that system was doing. So, you know, we've clearly got some questions to ask ourselves as discipline, as, a, as an academic community and, and then as a practitioner community, we just get things wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, time to start being better at the kind of analysis we're doing. If I could um, just come in just to 
I mean, Sue, I agree with everything, as always, that you said. But I think what we see in the commonality between the situation in Myanmar and the situation in Afghanistan is just how easily human rights can be put on paper, but not a lived reality. And so how fragile and how delicate and how fleeting they can actually be. And I think that when you when you look around the world, you actually, okay, well, what countries have actually transitioned rapidly from a situation that is skeptical of human rights to a situation that is truly fundamentally embracing those rights? That's an incredibly short list. And yet we go around the we go around the world. In fact, I'd struggle to think of any countries apart from like Eastern Europe immediately after the fall of communism, which is yeah, a very I've seen Germany. That's all I can think yeah, of. Which is a very unique situation, right? You know, we look around the world. This is a hard thing, and. In Myanmar, we had the word democracy, and so we're like, right, democratic. We completely forgot what the army was doing to institutionalize their power. In Afghanistan, we're like, oh, well, it all rests on American power, and America is, you know, so powerful. Well, then America leaves, and it falls over in, what, a weekend? You know, human rights are fragile. They require incredibly deep roots to, to be able to thrive independently, and we're seeing failures of policy, we're seeing failures of academia, and I think we're seeing failures of practice around that fragility. We assume that these things are easy and that we create them and we leave and they stand up on their own. And that's a really tall ask. That's a very hard thing. And I think, yes, thinking about what this failure means academically, but also in a policy sense, is incredibly important because I can sit here in Canberra and talk about failure, but this is a tragedy for people on the ground who are experiencing it, you know, and I think we need to really reflect on that. That's right. And the answers were always in front of us. You invest in people, you invest in communities, you know, you, the people who are going to get Afghanistan into a better future are the younger generation of Afghanistan. And the same with Myanmar, the incredible courage of of the young people there is, is it's extraordinary. And yet how much investment have community at community level has there actually been by the West? So we say all these, you know, it will be it'll be all about the people and, and then we do nothing to invest in them, basically. Um, apart from the odd kind of medal for the odd star person. But, you know, there's there's not that serious investment. We invest in institutions still, which is usually a, a flawed strategy. So I've Yes, and I think of the amount of money they spent on the Afghanistan National Army at the expense of social institutions in Afghanistan. It's It really is very depressing. But, you know, I'm hoping maybe the failure of intelligence as well in Afghanistan and Myanmar will hopefully prompt some reflection. The failures of prevention strategies, decent intelligence, human intel, and and then sort of, you know, options – I feel like our diplomatic community, our intelligence communities, our defence communities, they have a lot to think about. That is a good thing, I think, because if you think about both places too, not only are they also dealing with COVID, Myanmar, for example, is incredibly targeted for climate change issues. So it's it's one of the most, along with Bangladesh, its neighbour, it's, it's going to be one of the most affected countries the soonest and is already being affected by climate change. And I've, I've been really struck by how the ASEAN Parliamentarians for Human Rights are very focused on this green-led COVID recovery work because it's so crucial to so many of the countries in our region. And so, you know, we have to get some of these things right for the future now. 
Now, the two of you co-authored an article in 2016 that looked at Indonesia's normative influence in the region. What role do you think Indonesia can and perhaps should play in protecting women and girls in Afghanistan and in the region more broadly? Well, I'm beside myself because Indonesia is going to take over the G20 presidency in December. So it's going to have a moment and I'm so here for it because I've been really looking for Indonesia to have this big moment and, you know, kind of take its place as the power it is. And to do that in a constructive way, I think the Indonesian worldview is very specific and very particular and very interesting and hasn't really been ever seen in the G20 before. It has a lot to offer from having survived the economic crises, the Asian uh, financial crisis, and as well as the, the more recent one. So I, I really want Indonesia to say as president of, or as, as a key member of ASEAN, and it's also hosting the ASEAN presidency, it's my understanding, it will have this global leadership moment and I want to see what it can do. And I'm hoping that it will be progressive um, and as normative as possible uh, and that they don't play it safe and technical and, and bang on about infrastructure, which is what I worried they might in fact do. But I, I think they could. They, they, there will be a lot of expectation that we haven't really heard a strong Indonesian global leadership voice before in these forums, not as president, not with agenda-setting power, and I want to see what they do. I'm not – I don't know if I'm as positive as Sue is about what Indonesia might do. I think Indonesia is a fascinating case study because we know that in the Indonesian parliament, in the Indonesian sort of political commentary, there's been real strong pushback against the limitations of ASEAN around human rights. There was debates over ratifying the ASEAN Charter because it wasn't strong enough back in the late 2000s around human rights and democracy. But it's also case, also the case, sorry, the Indonesia today under Jokowi, I don't think is a particularly vocal promoter of democracy and human rights. Human rights within Southeast Asia or globally. I think Jokowi has very strong ideas that he wants Indonesia to be at the top table. And so being in, you know, the chair of the G20 is going to be great for that. But I'm not sure there's a coherent vision of what that means or a coherent ability to actually implement a vision if it exists. I think often with Indonesia, we expect it to act like a big Western democracy. It is a democracy. There are elections and all that stuff. And I don't see that in Indonesia's past. I think it's definitely more sort of comfortable with the language and the practice of human rights than many other, perhaps all other ASEAN member states. But I don't think it's going to be, you know, what we might expect it to be. I think it's going to be quieter than that. Um, and so I think Indonesia certainly has the ability to push this. And because of its status as very populous Muslim country, the biggest country in ASEAN, the chair of the G20, it has a moment where it could really carve out a position um, and exert some real pressure. I'm just not necessarily sure it's going to take advantage of that. We're going to, to have to start to, to draw this conversation to a close, but I think for all of us watching what happens when Indonesia does take the leadership of the G20 is going to be so interesting. And, and of course, we might see some of those tensions that are there within Indonesia playing out where there is a strong movement for human rights and for gender equality and women's rights, but also a very strong conservative push towards, um, well, away 
from women's human rights in particular and towards a much more conservative interpretation of gender relations and the family. So I think that's going to be a very interesting space to watch. As we do draw this conversation to a close, Matt and Sue, I I wanted to to bring us to the role of Australia in all of this and to, to ask each of you how you assess the role that Australia is currently playing in promoting human rights in the region, particularly Afghanistan and Myanmar, but perhaps what you would like to, what each of you would like to see Australia do to perhaps provide greater leadership. Um, mm. That's a, that's kind of framing the question in a particular yeah. way, assuming that there isn't leadership. But, um, but, but I'd be keen to hear each of your thoughts on that. Um, so what's your thinking on Australia's role? Well, I've been repeatedly told Afghanistan is in the rear view mirror. And for listeners, I'm using air quotes with my fingers, which is very depressing for me. So my my greatest wish would be that we learn, we really reflect and learn on our engagement in Afghanistan. The refugee intake is just scandalous. And so I'm hoping that is a decision that will be revisited uh, to be much more in line with our allies and our closest neighbours. I would like DFAT to be really focused on the kind of rise in digital surveillance um, under the guise of emergency powers from COVID in our region. I think that's really a trend to watch. Uh, And, you know, just to try every now and then to break out of the lens of geopolitical or uh, strategic competition in our region and actually think about what matters to the rights of Burmese people just because they're Burmese people as opposed to constantly thinking about everything in our region through a lens of strategic competition. I think that leads us astray. Uh, so there you go. That's a that's a bit of a list. And uh, to, to, to start preparing now for helping Indonesia with the G20 presidency, genuinely yeah. helping as a partner as much as we can as a previous host. Matt, what's your take on this? Uh, three things pop to mind. The first one is that Australia is not and is never going to be a leader in promoting human rights in Southeast Asia. That has to be Southeast Asians. It has to be those countries and those societies, those peoples, those, those networks that do it. So I think there is a real risk for Australia to frame itself as a leader, but because A, we, we're going to fail because we can't. And B, the worst thing you can do to all of these countries is to come in and say, well, I know what the right answer is you need to do this okay so that that's that's the first one the the second one is that we need to understand the complexity of the human rights situation that it's not just ASEAN it's not just national governments it's not just the UN it's not just human rights institutions it's not just civil society it's the interlocking of all of these different levels and all of these different actors you know and I think sometimes policymakers look for clarity when in fact what we really see is complexity the human rights space of Southeast Asia and across the Asia Pacific is incredibly complex. That's actually a good thing in the sense that it gives us multiple access points, multiple ways to create drag and costs on on human rights violating behaviour, supporting the UN, supporting countries that are going through CEDAW review or the UPR is actually going to really help the situation in those countries in small ways, but I think in real ways. Um, And the, the third thing I would mention is focus on the granular. 
supporting education awareness about the Human Rights Declaration, supporting fact-finding missions from the commissioners for the Women and Children Commission or the Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights. These are not, these are not sexy, high-profile policy decisions. But in a, in a policy institution network that is fragmented, that is weak, is opt-in, the best that we can hope for is supporting and increasing the effectiveness of these people because these people are passionate, many of them anyway, passionate defenders and promoters of human rights and whatever we can do to promote them whether if that's pretty low scale that's pretty small that's really important you know preparing and funding leaflets about what your rights are under the human rights declaration is or the ASEAN human rights Convention is going to be far more effective than having a big press conference with the 10 leaders of ASEAN in terms of actual on the ground reality so those would be my three Matt Davis and Sue Harris-Rimmer, it has been such a, a privilege to, to hear your thoughts on these important issues today. I, I think as the world and the region and Australia has focused so much on COVID, there have been so many other issues that are kind of slipping under the radar and it's so fundamentally important that we have these conversations. Thank you for your insights and for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sharon, that was an extraordinary conversation. It was so good to have Matt and Sue together and to get their, their collective wisdom on the extraordinary challenges in our region. And, and I think you really highlighted at the end uh, there uh, how how much has been happening in the world that we haven't been discussing as we've been deeply preoccupied by the global pandemic. It's it's so important to bring our lens back, I think, to the, the broader world. So it was a great conversation. How did you find it? Yeah, I thought that was a, an amazing conversation. I mean, both Sue and Matt bring such incredible expertise, but they also bring such humanity to talking about and thinking about what are incredibly difficult situations. And I think when we've seen the reporting in Afghanistan or in Myanmar of late, it almost becomes sort of almost clinical in the, in the discussion of what's happening. But what we need to remind ourselves of is that these are people's lives. And in many instances, these are the lives of people who have fought for so long to try to do the best by their communities and by their countries. Um, and they need support. They need ongoing support. And I thought, but, you know, the, the comments that Matt and Sue made at the end about how we move forward was so important. And Matt's emphasis on the granular and of supporting those people who are at the coalface, Sue's comments about supporting young people who daily put their lives at risk is just so important. So, yeah, that, that was a phenomenal conversation. Absolutely. So, listeners, thank you so much for joining us for today's uh, Policy Forum pod. If you're interested in hearing more about some of these issues, Policy Forum's actually just launched a new feature section on the least developed and lower middle income countries in Asia. You can find that on policyforum.net. In Focus, Developing Asia explores the most critical policy issues that have flown under the radar throughout the pandemic in countries that don't usually make the headlines in Australia. It includes contributions from experts in Australia and throughout the region. So if you're interested, we'll leave a link for you in the show notes. And of course, the website is policyforum.net. Listeners, we love hearing from you. Please reach out to us through the various social media platforms. We're on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. We have a Facebook group. You type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and join into that discussion group. We would love you to download and to subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on whichever platform you pod with. We do read them and we take them seriously. 
Listeners, thank you very much for joining us this week. We look forward to bringing you again an episode next week. It's bye-bye from me, Anna Greta Hunter. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.